Search teams are combing the streets and sifting through wrecked buildings as they look for bodies in the coastal city of Libya, where two dams collapsed and released enough water to cause a massive flood. More than 5,000 people are dead, thousands more are homeless at this hour. Today is Wednesday, September 13th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, 30 years after the Oslo Accords, peace is far away for Israelis and Palestinians. Several years ago, a public relations firm was hired to help a politician accused of sexual harassment. Meanwhile, it was also advising his accuser. They should have known that taking a client who I was suing was a conflict of interest. The managing partner of that PR firm is now a top advisor to President Biden. And as Hurricane Lee churns in the Atlantic, officials are warning about the risk of storm-related rip currents in our area. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Nearly 150,000 unionized workers are on the verge of going on strike against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. The president of the United Auto Workers Union, Sean Fain, tells ABC's Good Morning America that pay and benefit increases for the rank and file pale in comparison to the amount of money executives have earned in recent years. We've been very upfront uh, from the beginning with the companies that... Uh, um, you know, we're not picking a target. The target is the big three. And we expect, you know, September 14th is a deadline. We expect to have agreements with all three companies by that date. The workers deserve that. And if they do not have an agreement by that date, then there will be action. A UAW strike could prove politically costly for President Biden and his campaign for re-election. He has positioned himself as heavily pro-union. Utah U.S. Senator Mitt Romney has announced he will not seek re-election in 2024. Romney is known in the Senate as a frequent bipartisan negotiator and was the only Senate Republican to vote twice to convict former President Donald Trump following separate impeachment trials. An all-day search for earthquake victims is stretching late into the night in Morocco's remote Atlas Mountain villages. It's been days since the magnitude 6.8 Tumblr struck. The death toll is approaching 3,000. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports on the precarious circumstances of the thousands who survived the quake. Survivors are camping out in donated tents on the outskirts of towns. You know, in cities, it was because of fear of aftershocks, didn't want to go back into buildings. In the mountains, it's because the homes just simply aren't there anymore. And they're, you know, living outside now in baking heat by day and frigid temperatures at night. Aid convoys are moving in, um, dropping off supplies, but then sort of moving on. NPR's Lauren Freyer reporting. After 14 days on the run, law enforcement captured the man who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison without incident. Kenny Cooper from Philadelphia member station WHYY reports authorities said Danello Cavalcante was captured without a shot being fired. Authorities say Danello Cavalcante was lying under a pile of logs in rural Chester County at 8 a.m. on Wednesday morning. By then, thermal imaging cameras already had eyes on him. And before Cavalcante could make a move, law enforcement agents surrounded him. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says officers did extraordinary work. I hope the good people of Pennsylvania and indeed the folks all across this nation got a chance to see how government is supposed to work, how law enforcement is supposed to work, where we all come together, where we focus on the mission. Kevil Conte was serving a life sentence for murdering his ex-girlfriend in 2021. For NPR News, I'm Kenny Cooper in Philadelphia. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. It could be weeks before all damaged roads in Lemonster fully reopen. Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella said today that repairs are underway after the flooding this week. He also says crews are focusing on Barrett Pond Park. Our priority had to be the reservoir and Barrett Park. And uh, reservoir was taken care of, and uh, Barrett Park, it, it's underway. That will stabilize things as we deal with this n- next rainstorm today and the possibility that the hurricane uh, moves in our direction. Schools are also set to reopen tomorrow after they were closed today and yesterday. Meanwhile, all national grid customers in the Merrimack Valley are said to have their power back on. The utility says storms this week had knocked out electric service to more than 110,000 customers. National Grid officials say they're now preparing for another round of possible outages as Hurricane Lee approaches parts of the state later in the week. On the fifth anniversary of the Merrimack Valley gas explosion, Senator Ed Markey is introducing a bill to help prevent similar disasters in the future. The so-called PIPE Act would close a loophole that restricts federal regulators from applying new regulations to existing pipeline infrastructure. It would also allow regulators to impose greater penalties on companies that violate the rules. The 2018 natural gas explosions killed an 18-year-old man and damaged more than 100 buildings. Utah Senator Mitt Romney, who served as governor of Massachusetts and ran for president, says he will not seek a second term in Congress, as you heard from NPR. WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports Romney represents the dwindling moderate wing of the Republican Party. Romney's political career began in Massachusetts in 1994 when he unsuccessfully challenged Senator Ted Kennedy. Eight years later, he was elected governor and signed a major health care reform law known as Romneycare, which became the model for Obamacare. In 2012, he ran for president and lost to Barack Obama. As a senator from Utah, he was the sole Republican who voted twice to convict Donald Trump in his impeachment trials. Romney, who's 76, says it's time to move on. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. Romney's decision not to run again probably means an end to his political career. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. 74 degrees now in the Boston area, and the forecasts will see bright sunshine right now in Boston, but we've got thunderstorms on the way this afternoon and tonight. Overnight should start out stormy, then turn dry by tomorrow morning. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny. A nice day tomorrow with highs in the mid-70s. Could be a little less sunny, a little bit cooler on Friday. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. We are still learning the extent of the devastation in Libya after a storm slammed the coastal city of Derna. Two dams collapsed, whole neighborhoods washed away. So far, at least 5,000 people have been confirmed dead. Thousands more are missing. Dr. Huda Akram is a doctor based in Benghazi, Libya, but her family hails from Derna. And when we reached her today, I started by asking about them. A warning, the details of what she told me are vivid and disturbing. May, may I begin by asking after your family? Have you been able to reach them? Are they okay? 
Uh, well, my uncles and my aunts, they're fine, both from my, my mother's and my father's side, but my grandmother, unfortunately, did not make it with my aunt. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Um, but her son survived, though. At, at first, uh, we heard there's a storm coming. We thought it's just a couple of rain. People can seek shelter on the rooftops of their houses. But then things started to get bad started to become worse and we heard that the dam collapsed however we only saw the footage even after we heard the dam collapse we couldn't even imagine that the that it would be this bad um it's just in split seconds people who are anticipating they managed to warn the others to run and my cousin was telling me we were running and the water is just running after us and they stayed there on the rooftop until they were holding on because the water was also pushing them and they're these are these are like there's a lot of people her dad's entire household entire family name from the grandfather to the husband to the husband and wives and grandchildren completely wiped I, I mentioned you're a doctor you're a psychiatrist um so you will be thinking about this in terms of how on earth you process something like this how do you deal with the the shock now and the trauma that's to come is that right yes i mean we have a lot of ptsd we deal with a lot of ptsd soldiers from all the armed conflicts before and I, there's nothing compares to this i could not imagine that we ever saw patients who i mean my my cousin literally saw his mother die in front of him he was hanging on into a tree while my aunt and my grandmother drowned and it's just drowning is so in your own house being stuck is yeah. is ugly it's just it keeps haunting you how they must have felt while they were seeing anticipating their death i i want people to understand that what is what you're describing an unspeakably awful situation is made worse by the instability that Libya has experienced in recent years, political instability. What are you hearing about relief efforts, about trying to get help to people who desperately need it? Yes, but the thing is that it's, it's a very small town and people are always helping out each other. Like for us, we will host our, our, our uncles and aunts. My other uncle has an apartment here in Benghazi. So it's all about like family and connections and people hosting each other because every person here in, has a relative there. It's the connection between Benghazi and Darna is very strong and there's always family members back and forth hosting. However, um, there are uh, the, the, I hear help is going there, but yeah. I, I, nobody, no one is telling us that they're actually receiving help. Are you hearing anything from the government? Is there anything emerging in terms of leadership through this crisis? Well, in all honesty, this town has been receiving millions of millions of on budget for maintenance and infrastructure. And there have been a special budget for the dam, but no one, it was never actually spent. It was never spent for that purpose. We don't know where that money goes. It's just the money goes. We don't see it on the ground. And I, I was waiting for someone to apologize, for someone to give to, to resign, for someone to be even forcefully fired. 
no one did. The governor, the local governor of the city said, well, we asked them to evacuate and, you know, it's just God's will. That's all he ever said. I don't know how is he not being held accountable for this. No one is being held accountable. Is this they're treating it as if it's a natural disaster. It's not natural disaster. It's men. It's negligence. That is Dr. Huda Akram speaking to us from Benghazi in Libya. Dr. Akram, thank you for your time. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Inflation picked up a little steam last month, largely as a result of rising gas prices. The Labor Department says the overall cost of living in August was up 3.6 percent from a year ago. That is the biggest annual increase that we have seen all summer. But the Federal Reserve is still expected to hold interest rates steady when policymakers meet next week. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so inflation was coming down for most of the last year, right? But now it's gone up for two months in a row. How worried should we be? You know, it's not what you want to see, but it might not be that big a deal. Uh, As you noted, rising gas prices accounted for more than half the monthly jump in the cost of living last month. And that may not continue. We know gas prices bounce both up and down. Uh, Preston Caldwell, who's the chief U.S. economist at Morningstar, says gas prices may have a little more uh, room to climb, but he thinks drivers will start to see some relief at the gas pump in the not-too-distant future. We'll see another month or two, perhaps, of upward pressure on energy prices, but after that it should run in the opposite direction, I think. Gas prices are still lower than they were at this time a year ago and quite a bit lower than they were at their peak uh, last June after the U.S. slapped sanctions on Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine. Right. Okay. And what's happening to other prices? You know, it's a really mixed bag. Uh, Rent is still going up, although not as fast as it was. Uh, Hotel room rates were down last month. Airfares were up after falling in June and July. Uh, The rise in airfares was mainly because of higher jet fuel costs. Uh, Caldwell says if you strip out that volatile energy component and volatile food prices, we're generally seeing an easing of inflation over the last 12 months. This still paints a picture of core inflation returning to normal, and so the Fed will not high rates in its meeting next week. I think they're probably done hiking for the rest of this year. And financial markets generally share that uh, forecast, at least as far as next week's meeting is concerned. Although with inflation still well above the Fed's target of 2%, you can't rule out uh, one additional interest rate hike uh, later in the year. Hmm. Well, I understand that one place people are really feeling this inflation is auto insurance. What's going on there? Yeah, auto insurance has been a big mover this year. Prices are up more than 19%. That's partly a byproduct of some of the other inflationary forces we've been seeing. You know, it costs more to repair or replace a car these days. Uh, The insurance industry also says it's seen more serious accidents uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and more uh, more damage from natural disasters. Uh, Rising insurance premiums are a challenge because in most states, car owners have to carry auto insurance. I asked California consumer watchdog Harvey Rosenfield what drivers can do to try to cut those expenses. There's not a lot of solace there. I mean, the very first thing you got to do is shop around because there are very often better deals to be had. Some insurers charge more than others. The next thing to do is make sure that they've accurately assessed you as an individual policyholder. 
you know, some insurance companies will give you a discount if you download an app on your phone so they can track your driving habits. Of course, <laughs> there's a privacy trade-off there. Yeah. Uh, often it pays to bundle your home and auto insurance. Uh, there is some good news. Used car prices were down last month. Uh, new car prices were up again, though, and we could see new car prices go higher if there's an extended strike against the Detroit automakers. Mm. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. The MTV Video Music Awards are back, and though the ceremony faced some length, some pacing issues, NPR's Isabel Gomez-Sarmiento reports that the VMAs packed a serious punch last night. A couple of big pop stars got long overdue recognition from MTV last night for their trailblazing roles in music. Shakira became the first South American artist to win the Video Vanguard Award, which she celebrated with a 10-minute medley of her career-spanning hits. Sean Diddy Combs also took the stage with a mashup of his own, appearing at the VMAs for the first time in over a decade. Diddy received the Global Icon Award. Taylor Swift took home nine awards. But Billboard deputy editor Andrew Unterberger says who wins isn't necessarily what makes the VMAs exciting. What people are tuning in for now is the performances. This year, the growing influence of global music in mainstream pop became clear as artists from around the world performed at the ceremony. Peso Pluma brought Mexican regional front and center and K-pop band Tomorrow by Together collaborated with Brazilian pop sensation Anita. Another important nod to international stars came when Nigerian singer Rema won the inaugural Best Afrobeats Award for his song Calm Down featuring Selena Gomez. This means so much seeing Afrobeat grow this big and being here on this stage representing Afrobeat tonight. I'm so happy. But Unterberger says the ceremony had one big problem. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, nearly four hours is just too long for any award show. It wrapped up with the 50th anniversary of hip-hop tribute, including Grandmaster Flash and LL Cool J. Unterberger says it might have been a missed opportunity in a year of so many hip-hop tributes for the VMAs to look forward, giving Glorilla, Cali, or Best New Artist winner Ice Spice a chance to perform instead. And these are the, the artists that are sort of going to you know, create the vanguard for the next generation. And this would have been a great moment for the VMAs to take the point to sort of show them off and say, OK, here's what's coming next. There's always next year. Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 20 minutes, cybercrime is still a problem around the world, but agreeing on a definition on the international stage has been a huge challenge. We'll tell you more in 20 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. The Dow fell two-tenths of a percent today, while the S&P and NASDAQ picked up a little steam. S&P rose a little more than a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ gained three-tenths of a percent. The start of the NFL season is coinciding with increased interest in online sports wagering in Massachusetts. GeoComply provides location and fraud detection for online sports books in the state. The company says nearly 60,000 new mobile sports betting accounts were created between September 3rd and September 10th. 
GeoComply says the NFL season typically accounts for about 60% of annual revenue for online sports book operators. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. Thunderstorms and showers on the way this afternoon and tonight. Overnight tonight should start off with some rain, but then dry by tomorrow morning. Mostly sunny skies ahead for tomorrow with highs in the mid-70s. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dementia Society of America, committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-Dementia.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It was on a clear and cloudless morning this very day, 30 years ago, on the south lawn of the White House, and peace felt palpable. This bold new venture today, this brave gamble that the future can be better than the past, must endure. President Bill Clinton stood alongside Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin for the signing of what came to be known as the Oslo Accords. The two men, long steeped in conflict, shook hands. A handshake meant to lead to peace for Israelis and Palestinians. While 30 years on, peace feels very far away. Violence persists almost daily. Sitting in the audience at the White House that day was Aaron David Miller. Back in 1993, he was the State Department's Deputy Special Middle East Coordinator. He then spent years trying to help implement the Oslo process. Aaron David Miller, welcome to All Things Considered. Always a pleasure, Mary Louise, to be with you. Take me back to that day. Y'all were, what, in the folding chairs they set out on the South Lawn, September 13th, 1993. What was going through your mind? Sunny, hot, beautiful day. And I must admit, I was caught up in the moment. This was not process. This was substance. I think no one anticipated the breathtaking scope and expanse of what the Israelis and Palestinians had worked out by themselves, an interim process. Yeah, I thought wrongly, in horrible misjudgment, I must say, that uh, the peace process, so-called, had become uh, irreversible and there was no going back. Before we move on from that handshake... You know, for those who don't remember, for those who aren't familiar with those personalities, how big a deal was that handshake between Arafat and Rabin? I think it was huge. In fact, in many respects, there was a good deal of Israeli nervousness about Rabin actually shaking hands with Arafat. It was, it was the, the first time, right? They'd never done right. it. Right, yeah. right. It was uh, a beaming Arafat and a very awkward and comfortable Isaac Rabin, uh, somebody, an authentic, genuine Israeli leader who had taken a huge decision given Israeli politics and would pay for his life in making that decision. Oh. So in that moment of hope, when, as you put it, you believed the, the peace process and forward momentum were irreversible, what exactly was promised? Like, I know this is incredibly complicated to sum up, but in a few sentences, what was the Oslo Agreement? 
Well, there were two pieces to it. One was a package of mutual recognition between Israel and the PLO, which was really quite controversial. In fact, that actually endures, for better or for worse. The second was on the substance. A series of interim accords which were to be negotiated, which essentially had the Israelis withdrawing from large pieces of the West Bank and a promise that the interim period would eventually end in five years and permanent status negotiations would begin between Israelis and Palestinians. The logic of Oslo, Mayor Louise, was that this interim process could generate the kind of trust and confidence that would allow the leaders in their respective publics to essentially then face the excruciatingly painful issues of what to do about Jerusalem, refugees, borders, security, and, of course, how to end conflict. That never materialized. In fact, Oslo, I think, produced precisely the opposite lack of confidence, lack of trust, profound suspicion. So I want to dwell a moment on the U.S. role here, because the U.S. has always maintained that Palestinians and Israelis have to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict directly. But obviously the U.S. was deeply involved. You were deeply involved. And the U.S. was then and is still seen as favoring Israel. Was that problematic? Did that seep into the talks? Uh, There's no doubt about it. We were involved. But then again, remember, this was their process. We were all quite surprised by the uh, specificity and the breathtaking nature of the compromises that both the Israelis and the Palestinians had made. It was their agreement. And um, unfortunately, it was structurally flawed. We did enter the process. First, uh, we catered for peace. We were firemen and women who essentially uh, were called on at, at moments of crisis during the negotiations. We really were far too often Israel's lawyer when, in fact, we should have been an attorney for an agreement, lawyering for both Israelis and Palestinians. So bottom line How much responsibility do you think the U.S. bears for the collapse of the peace effort? Uh, I think we we bear a fair share. Uh, I would never argue that the primary reason you do not have an Israeli-Palestinian conflict ending agreement today is largely because of the absence or presence of U.S. rule. I think in the end, the old expression in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car, is is profound and appropriate here, Mayor Louise. I mean, people don't wash rental cars usually because they care only about what they own. So no, the primary responsibility for why we don't have Israeli-Palestinian peace, despite the asymmetries of power between Israelis and Palestinians, rests with the um, Israelis and Palestinians themselves. Well, this brings us to where we are now, which to sum up... Uh, and correct me if there's anything I'm about to say that you disagree with, but we have Israel with the most right-wing government it has ever seen. Its senior leaders openly want to undo Oslo. We have Palestinians who are also deeply divided, two rival leaderships, and many ordinary Palestinians do not see the Palestinian Authority, which was set up under Oslo, as legitimate. What promise do you see, what hope do you see going forward? You know, Elie Wiesel once said, without hope, there's no life. And I agree to that. Um, Do I think a a two-state solution or separation through negotiations into two polities, do I think that's still possible? Yes, I do. But you need leaders who are masters of their politics, not prisoners of their ideologies. You need a sense of ownership. And you need an end state. You need some organizing principle. I mean, I still cling to the notion that the only logical, rational outcome is separation through negotiation. I don't see any other way. You're making me think back to that day 
uh, on the lawn at the White House, 1993. And I want to just step back and look at the wider stage. The early 90s, when that happened, we were marking the end of the Cold War. The Berlin Wall had fallen. In Northern Ireland, the groundwork for the Good Friday Agreement was being laid. There seemed to be windows for peace opening in many parts of the world in that moment. Today feels so very different, um, not just in the Middle East, but, but more widely. So can you imagine another window like that opening for the Israelis and Palestinians? Frankly, as I mentioned to my kids in their 40s, I'm not prepared to say never. And the answer is yes, I can imagine it. But it, it needs essentially, we, can't, we can no longer delude ourselves or fool ourselves. We need leaders, we need an effective mediator, and we need a sense of ownership and a sense of partnership. And you simply don't have it. I would say to you that there are no rewind buttons on history. The 90s was the only decade in the last century in which there was no major Arab-Israeli war, 48, 56, 67, 82. The 90s came and went with no conflict. And that was in large part because of the hope and promise and because of the U.S. role. We've been speaking with Aaron David Miller, who today is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was the Deputy Special Middle East Coordinator for Arab-Israeli Negotiations. Aaron David Miller, thank you. Thank you, Mary Louise. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, as Hurricane Lee churns in the Atlantic, officials are warning about the risk of storm-related rip currents that have killed more people than tornadoes or hurricanes have over the past decade. The rip current risk ahead in about 20 minutes on WBUR. It's been a pretty fickle day so far with the clouds and sunshine taking turns, but stormy weather is on the way, should be here for the next several hours. Right now there's a tornado warning up for parts of Providence County in Rhode Island. It's up for about 15 more minutes. We're expecting showers and thunderstorms with a chance of some flooding into tonight. Overnight slow clearing, then tomorrow should have mainly sunny skies. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. So the biggest change here is moving the kitchen yes. to the back where the sunroom was. There was a HGTV, dramatic remodels and dreamy properties. Oh, I could do this with our house or that with our house and it would be so much better and look how easy it is. But is HGTV popularizing cookie cutter design over regional character across America? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. That is amazing. I love it. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, lawmakers are bracing for the artificial intelligence revolution meeting today behind closed doors with several tech industry giants, including Elon Musk of Tesla and X, formerly known as Twitter. Musk says most tech company executives agree that AI needs some form of government control to ensure the future of human civilization. The reason that I've been such an advocate for AI safety in advance of sort of anything terrible happening is that I think the consequences of 
AI going wrong are, are severe. Um, so we have to be proactive rather than reactive. Senator Richard Blumenthal says the threat that AI poses is real. We need to do what has been done for airline safety, car safety, drug safety, medical device safety. AI safety is no different. In fact, potentially even more dangerous. The bipartisan group of senators are looking to craft legislation by the end of this year to address AI regulation. The U.N. envoy on Sudan is resigning and warning that the conflict between two rival military leaders shows no signs of letting up. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. In his final report to the U.N. Security Council, Special Envoy Volker Perthes issued this warning. What started as a conflict between two military formations could be morphing into a full-scale civil war. He says at least 5,000 people have been killed. Perthes blames the Sudanese military for indiscriminate bombing and says a rival paramilitary force is responsible for sexual violence and killings in areas they control. Earlier this year, Sudanese authorities declared him persona non grata, which the U.N. rejected. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he's accepted his envoy's decision to resign now. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The boosters are coming. Shipments of the new COVID vaccine are on the way to Massachusetts. Federal officials yesterday recommended the shot for people six months and older. The new vaccine formula is designed to offer better protection against the latest variants of the virus. Here's WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey. Massachusetts Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says state residents will be able to start getting shots within days. The updated COVID vaccine began shipping last night and will be available in clinics, at pharmacies, and through local boards of health as early as the end of this week. The pharmacy chain CVS says vaccine doses are starting to arrive and will be at all of its pharmacies by early next week. Walgreens is also scheduling appointments for next week. The new vaccine arrives as COVID cases and hospitalizations remain on the rise. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The State Department of Public Health is raising the risk of eastern equine encephalitis to high in six communities. Mosquito samples containing triple E were found this week in Sutton and Southbridge. That's prompting the state to raise the risk to high in those two communities, as well as in nearby Douglas, Dudley, Oxford, and Webster. No human or animal cases of Tripoli have been found in Massachusetts so far this year. The group Lawyers for Civil Rights is demanding answers after three middle school girls in Clinton were ordered to tie up their braids to play a basketball game. The group sent a letter to the National Federation of State High School Associates, which enforces sports rules. The letter says only that three black girls were asked to tie their hair back. Apparently, none of the white players were. The group claims the game's referee violated the state's Crown Act, which bans hair-based discrimination. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. There is a tornado warning up for parts of Providence County in Rhode Island. It's up for about 10 more minutes. We're expecting showers and thunderstorms our way with a chance of flooding into the night tonight. Should be clear and dry by tomorrow morning, then tomorrow a mainly sunny day with high temperatures in the low to mid-70s. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station 
And from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Anita Dunn, a top advisor to President Biden, is facing criticism for revelations that she previously advised a once powerful Illinois politician on how to respond to sexual harassment and retaliation claims. At the time, Anita Dunn was managing partner of a public relations firm. And while she and her firm were advising this politician behind the scenes, they were also working with the group Time's Up and supporting the woman who had brought those very allegations. The firm, SKDK, did not disclose that conflict of interest. And NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach has been reporting the story and joins us now. Hey, Tom. Hey. Okay, so first, can you just walk us through the sexual harassment case here? Yes. So in 2018, a woman who worked in Illinois Democratic politics, her name was Elena Hampton, she sued several political committees run by one of the most powerful people in Illinois, Speaker of the Illinois House of Representatives Michael Madigan. She said that her direct supervisor on a campaign repeatedly sexual harassed her, and that when she reported this to higher-ups, including Madigan himself, she faced retaliation. Now, Madigan himself was not personally accused of harassment, but he and his team saw this as a political scandal. Two of Madigan's allies said they then went looking for a crisis communications firm to respond to the allegations, and as it happens, the FBI was listening into their conversation on a wiretap as part of a corruption investigation. Hmm. So we finally hired a crisis management company. Who's that? Anita Dunn. Anita Dunn. D-U-N-N. Anita Dunn is now in the White House, but at the time, she was a managing director at the communications firm she helped found, SKDK. The D stands for Dunn. And we should say there is no evidence that Dunn or her firm were in any way implicated in that corruption investigation. Okay, and as we mentioned, SKDK also went on to work with the woman who brought these allegations. How did that even happen? That's right. Elena Hampton, who brought this lawsuit, got connected with the anti-harassment charity Time's Up. Which, to remind people, got started after the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke to help survivors of sexual harassment and assault. Exactly. And Time's Up directly partnered with SKDK. The idea was that SKDK would help people deal with the media requests that so often happen in these cases. So Time's Up and SKDK took on Elena Hampton. And as a result, SKDK was essentially on both sides of this case. They were supporting Elena Hampton, who brought the harassment and retaliation case. At the same time, they were being paid to advise Michael Madigan, a defendant in that case, on how to respond. And that information was never disclosed to Hampton, the harassment victim, right? No, she only found out because this information came out at a federal corruption trial, and she was told by our colleagues at Chicago Public Media. Meanwhile, the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund said SKDK never shared this information about their conflict of interest with them either, and they said they share Elena Hampton's frustration. Here is what Elena Hampton told me. Anita Dunn specifically is an advisor to the President of the United States, and to learn that she was helping advise my former employer on my retaliation case due to sexual harassment is just a clear conflict of interest. It's really a violation of trust, and it feels like a betrayal. Now, Elena Hampton's case ultimately resulted in a settlement with no admission of wrongdoing by Madigan. 
Madigan himself is now facing a bribery and racketeering trial next year. He's pleaded not guilty. Given everything that we now know, I asked Elena Hampton specifically what she would say to Anita Dunn, and here's what she said. I don't know Anita Dunn, and I hope I never will, but I would question her on her values and integrity, and I would ask her how she can credibly claim her commitment to women's rights and issues. Well, how have Dunn and SKDK responded to your reporting so far? Well, I briefly reached Anita Dunn by phone. She said she was heading into a meeting and told me to just call SKDK before hanging up. SKDK, for their part, initially defended their work for Michael Madigan. They said it went through a stringent conflict of interest check. They emphasized that Hampton's contact at SKDK was not a full-time employee of the firm, but a contractor, though that contractor still had an SKDK email address. But then, a day later today... They revised that statement and said that representing Michael Madigan was actually an error, and they said they apologized to Elena Hampton and reiterate their full support for the survivor community. Has Elena Hampton had a chance to see that apology, and what does she think of it? Yeah, so I uh, I got that apology note earlier today. I, I called up Elena Hampton. We briefly talked. She told me she believes the apology is not enough to repair the damage that she believes SKDK did, not only in her case, but to the Me Too movement overall. She said her biggest concern in all of this is not herself, but that other women will look at this experience and worry about coming forward and what might happen. That is NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks, Elsa. Cybercrime has shut down governments and has cost companies billions around the globe. But before a larger group of countries can come together to fight back, they have to decide how to define cybercrime itself. That's part of an ongoing debate at the United Nations, as NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports. Ambassador Deborah McCarthy just got back from a trip to New York, where a group of diplomats from around the world gathered to discuss a costly worldwide problem. And I'm the lead U.S. negotiator for this U.N. process to negotiate a new cybercrime treaty. A new cybercrime treaty. Basically, McCarthy and her colleagues want to get as many nations as possible together to define the term cybercrime and find ways to work together to track down cybercriminals. It's not the first tool of its kind. There's also the Budapest Convention. But this group is looking for broader international consensus, specifically on digital crimes committed by individuals rather than nations. But there's been a major challenge since they started negotiating in 2019, namely Russia. Russia has, in the most recent round, come back in with major requests to insert language that was not included in the first draft for it did not have consensus in any way, shape or manner. The diplomats just wrapped up the sixth round of negotiations, and Russia is still trying to insist on an extremely broad definition of cybercrime. Here's how Ambassador McCarthy summed it up. Everything that occurs over the internet. So that includes political speech, as well as crimes that predate the internet itself. The U.S. and its allies are trying to define cybercrime more narrowly, to avoid policing speech, and to keep the focus on purely digital crimes. Russia and China actually led the way in pushing for this new cybercrime treaty back in 2019. But since then, Russia has lost international support, especially because of the war in Ukraine. And we have noted the irony of trying to uh, negotiate a new U.N. instrument um, instigated by a country that has violated the Charter of the United Nations. But beyond that, small and medium-sized countries are really recognizing the importance of getting on the same page about cybercrime. 
In fact, Vanuatu was a major contributor to the recent discussion, said McCarthy. The tiny island nation was hit by a major cyber attack in November of 2022. There are still major disagreements to work out, but McCarthy hopes the group will come to a consensus at the final session in February. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As the climate changes, places where home air conditioning used to be rare are now seeing a need for artificial cooling. It's a new expense that's especially hard for people in low-income housing. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. On a summer day with temperatures pushing into the 90s, Heather Ronnie's two kids eagerly lined up for the ice cream truck. We've actually seen it driving down the road and they were freaking out. They're in Columbia Falls, Montana, about 20 miles southwest of Glacier National Park. In August, several Montana cities set daily high temperature records. It was the hottest month on record in parts of Washington and Oregon, too. This after hundreds in the region died from heat-related causes in 2021 and 2022. Most died in homes without air conditioning. This summer, Ronnie had to take her three-year-old son to the emergency room because it was so hot in their apartment. All of a sudden, he's throwing up and very tired. I took him in immediately. Nationwide, more than half a million public and low-income housing units like Ronnie's don't have AC. The Pew Research Center's Drew DeSilver says a lot of them are in the Rockies or Pacific Northwest. So a lot of those places, they didn't really need air conditioning, and so a lot of uh, homes just didn't come with air conditioning. Lots of low-income people use vouchers from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, to help pay their rent. But while HUD requires housing funds to provide heat, it doesn't have dedicated funding to install AC in low-income housing. Requiring AC would be challenging. HUD declined to make someone available for an interview on the topic, but has said it's contemplating a cooling requirement. Public housing infrastructure is already crumbling, with various estimates putting the maintenance backlog at roughly $80 billion. Bridget Simmons is with the National Housing Law Project. So that's why this concern about financially how does it get done is a big concern. Lots of states have assistance programs to help people with low incomes pay their heating bills. But that kind of help for cooling is rare. And it's not just a matter of comfort. Low-income and rural Americans are more likely to have health conditions that make them susceptible to heat, says Dr. Lori Byron with the group Montana Health Professionals for a Healthy Climate. People with multiple medical problems, with chronic disease, with diabetes, they are more likely to die in a heat wave, especially if they don't have access to cool air. Analysis from the place with the most heat-related deaths in America, the Phoenix metro area, found that the majority of people who died indoors from heat last summer were in dwellings without working air conditioning. Authorities in Arizona have been setting up public cooling centers to reduce heat-related deaths. Byron says they're needed here in Montana now, too. Cooling centers 
there aren't really any set up yet. Inside Heather Ronnie's apartment in Columbia Falls, her kids are devouring their ice cream treats. Ronnie, who works as a housekeeper, says she was able to afford a swamp cooler, which cools the air through evaporation. It hasn't helped much. She wanted to buy a cheap window air conditioner, but those aren't allowed. I thought it was ridiculous because we all have children here and it is like a hot box in here. <laughs> she says if she got help to install AC, she'd be happy to cover the extra utilities. She says that would surely be cheaper than another ER visit for her youngest child. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, top tech CEOs, including Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates, held a closed-door meeting with senators on Capitol Hill today to talk about artificial intelligence and how it could and should be controlled. That story's coming up. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Stormy weather is moving into southern Massachusetts from Rhode Island and Connecticut. There are cells northbound over Grafton, Webster, Uxbridge, and near Franklin. A tornado warning from Bristol County has been issued until 515. That's the same cell that caused a warning over Providence County, Rhode Island. Look for some showers overnight tonight. Some of them heavy should be clearing by tomorrow, then a sunny day ahead for tomorrow. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com. And the Boston Globe's Globe Summit 2023. Today's innovators, tomorrow's leaders. Virtually or in person at WBUR City Space, September 19th through 21st. The third annual event features speakers Rain Wilson, Devin McCourty, Alex Gora, Keith Lockhart, and more. Open to the public. Registration at globe.com summit. Several senior government leaders are in their 70s or 80s. The wisdom, experience, perspective, that older generations can bring to our governance is both remarkable, important, and, and necessary. How old is too old to run for office? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. While Hurricane Lee churns far offshore in the Atlantic Ocean off the U.S. coast with a possible weekend impact in New England or Canada, there is another danger lurking rip currents. They usually receive little attention, but they are the third leading cause of weather fatalities, and forecasters are especially worried about Lee this week. Here's NPR's Greg Allen with more. Over the last 10 years, rip currents have killed more people than tornadoes or hurricanes. This year has already been particularly bad, with 76 deaths reported through August. As Hurricane Lee moves north through the Atlantic, National Hurricane Center Director Mike Brennan says his top message for people on the East Coast is watch out for rip currents. Hurricanes, even if they're far offshore, can produce dangerous surf and rip current conditions. Please be safe if you're going to get in the, in the water. Pay attention to warning flags. Pay attention to any advice you're given by lifeguards. 
Hurricane Lee, once a Category 5 storm with 165-mile-per-hour winds, has weakened as it's moved north over cooler waters. But meteorologist Jace Bernhardt at Hofstra University says it's also grown larger. When it's a large, powerful hurricane like Lee is, it's going to kick up a lot of waves, and those heavy waves and high surf will eventually make its way to the east coast. Rip currents form when heavy surf piles up water near the shoreline. Bernhardt says the water then accelerates and rushes downhill, pulling anything caught in it, including swimmers, out to sea. Especially if there's a gap in, say, a sandbar, if there's a narrow passage for the water to go through, the water is being accelerated through. And another way to think about that is if you have like a garden hose and you cover up part of it, it's going to be accelerated more quickly. In this country, rip currents pose a danger to beachgoers everywhere, including the Great Lakes. But the most dangerous place recently has been in Florida. Tonight, the famous picturesque shores of Panama City Beach, Florida, now the deadliest beach in the nation. In June, at least 11 people died in rip currents in Panama City Beach and other nearby resorts on Florida's Panhandle. The director of beach safety in Panama City Beach, Daryl Paul, says in most areas, rip currents come and go depending on the surf, the tides, and other factors. On his beach, he says, the cause is usually the wind. If you have a strong 15-mile-an-hour southwest wind, that's hitting Panama City Beach, your rips are going to be powered and they're not going to stop. This rip's always under power. The foot's always on the gas. Paul says his lifeguards have rescued more than 200 people from rip currents this summer. He's put up a double red flag, closing the water to swimming more than 20 times so far. On those days, he says, he's the most unpopular man on Panama City Beach. I've met dudes from Australia. They come down, they're like, oh, my, what? why are you closing the water, mate? You know, this is nothing. This is nothing. You're, you're crazy. Well, we're flying it for rip currents. Experts say the problem is that most people don't know anything about rip currents, the risk they pose, and how many people die because of them each year. Paul says it doesn't make sense, but beachgoers are more worried about sharks, which kill just a handful of people each year. Rip currents move quickly, as fast as five miles per hour. They don't pull you under. Paul says if you're caught in one, swim parallel to the shore. But the most important thing is to stay calm. If all you can do is float, then just float on your back. You know, throw an arm up and start waving. Let the current take you until it lets go. The National Weather Service now issues rip current forecasts for coastal communities. Unlike fatalities in hurricanes, tornadoes, and other weather events, experts say deaths from rip currents should be almost entirely preventable. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Racial tension in an office space grows much more sinister in The Other Black Girl. That's a satirical thriller debuting on Hulu today. It drops only days after another workplace satire, Dreaming Whilst Black, aired on Showtime on Sunday. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says they have one powerful thing in common, spot-on depictions of being a black worker in a mostly white space. Nella Rogers is trying to go about her day as the only black employee at Wagner Books Publishing House when a white co-worker pops up with a question. Did you read that piece I sent? The token in the corporate machine being black in a white workplace. Did you read it? In the last 30 seconds? It is such an important topic. And you know, I'm always looking for better ways to be an ally to you. You should read it, like maybe right now, and share if it resonates. Talk about microaggressions. Nella is the put-upon protagonist in The Other Black Girl, played with a deft earnestness by Sinclair Daniel. She's suffering as an ambitious editorial assistant surrounded by well-meaning white people who don't see her. 
only a caricature of a young black person filtered through their own stereotypes. Nella thinks she's found an ally when the office finally hires another black girl named Hazel, who graduated from historically black Howard University. Little baby performed my senior year. What? Girl was serious. I am still recovering. Oh my God. But when Nella tries to bring change by telling her white boss about a star author who created a super stereotypical character named Chartresha. Well, I can appreciate that Colin wants to represent the opioid epidemic through a diverse perspective. Diversity matters. Colin has written an idea of a person that somehow also manages to hit on every harmful stereotype. I mean, a baby daddy whose name she doesn't know. Hazel undercuts her by telling the author himself something very different. I really like the book. I think Chartricia has potential. I'm excited to read it again with a specific eye on her. It read really well. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad you liked it. Mm. This is the masterful way the other black girl turns the tensions black people face working in mostly white office spaces into horror show material. Because when one other black person on staff makes him or herself look good by sabotaging another, it can feel like that moment in The Shining when Jack Nicholson's character turns on his family. But Dreaming Whilst Black, a British comedy now airing on Showtime, takes a lighter tone. It features co-writer Ajani Salman as Quabena, an aspiring film director stuck in a dead-end office job who realizes his white co-workers asked him for recommendations on a film to watch during a date because he's seeing a black woman. I've been Googling black Oscar films. Okay. Color purple. I feel like for a first date, you might want to choose something without rape. Yeah, okay, no, probably. Okay, what about, ooh, 12 Years a Slave? Bro, that's slavery and rape. Later, when he's dragged to a lame karaoke bar by his co-workers. Here we go now. Where we going now? Give it away, give it away, give it away now. They demand he sing along with them when the N-word pops up, and he quits the job on the spot. Now, as someone who's been the only black person in an office, I was really touched and entertained by both the other black girl and Dreaming Whilst Black. In particular, they offer spot-on depictions of the wryly humorous and downright horrific moments perpetrated by white people often blithely unaware of how much power comes from simply being in the majority. It's the bittersweet icing on a sumptuous cake. Incisive moments from two series whose insights on race and society speak powerfully to this modern moment. I'm Eric Deggins. And in the interest of full disclosure, the sister of NPR's Aisha Harris, Zakia Dalila Harris, wrote the book, The Other Black Girl, and is an executive producer and co-writer of the show. Aisha was not involved with our decision to review the TV show. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice, from the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller, rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, 
helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is 90.9 WBUR. Got a tornado warning for Bristol County. Should last about another 15 minutes. It's the same cell that caused a tornado warning in Providence County in Rhode Island. We also have a flash flood warning in effect for parts of eastern and central Mass. Showers and thunderstorms likely for the next several hours. Some of the rain could be heavy, so keep an eye out for flooding. Tonight, rainy to start, then clearing by morning. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Artificial intelligence was the big issue today when a bipartisan group of U.S. senators held a meeting behind closed doors with some of the tech industry's biggest leaders with names like Zuckerberg, Gates, and Musk. It's clear that there's a strong consensus, overwhelming consensus, that there should be some AI regulation that it would be in the best interests of the people. historic meeting coming up on this Wednesday, September 13th. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a Moroccan family ventures back to their ancestral home in the Atlas Mountains to see if it's still standing after last weekend's major earthquake. A panel of experts has concluded that a common ingredient in over-the-counter decongestants does not work. We'll check on how long the product's going to be offered on store shelves. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says President Biden is focusing his time on issues that are important to the American people and not the impeachment investigation. As NPR's Franco Ordonez explains, the White House calls Republicans' inquiry baseless. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Republicans have produced no evidence against the president in their months-long investigation of his son, Hunter Biden. There is no evidence. There does not, the evidence does not exist. And this is a political stunt. She noted that President Biden would be addressing the economy on Thursday in a speech in Maryland. She said the president has his priorities straight and that he's dealing with real issues that are important to the American people while Republicans are focused on baseless claims against the president. She would not say, though, whether the administration would comply with information requests from House Republicans as part of their impeachment inquiry. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney says he will not be seeking another term in 2024. A traditional conservative, he nonetheless broke party ranks at key moments in his political career, as we hear from NPR's Deidre Walsh. Romney, who is 76, cited a list of bipartisan bills he helped pass in his one term in the Senate. He said it was time to pass the political torch to a younger candidate. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. Romney served as governor of Massachusetts and was his party's nominee for president in 2012, losing to President Obama. He voted to convict President Trump in both of his impeachment trials in the Senate. Romney regularly disagreed with Trump and opposes his bid for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. 
Romney was expected to face a primary challenge if he ran for a second term. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Inflation ticked up last month thanks in part to rising energy prices. NPR Scott Horsley reports. Rising gasoline prices were the biggest driver of inflation last month, along with rising rent. Overall, consumer prices were up 3.7% in August compared to a year ago. That's slightly more than forecasters were expecting. Higher jet fuel prices also pushed airfares higher in August after steep drops in the two previous months. The price of auto insurance also continues to climb. Car insurance premiums are up more than 19 percent over the last 12 months. Despite the somewhat hotter-than-expected inflation report, investors don't think the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates when policymakers meet next week. Additional rate hikes are still possible, though, later this year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. As the clock takes down towards a possible strike, the head of the United Auto Workers Union is briefing members at this hour. Union leaders apparently now looking at the idea of considering strikes at a small number of factories run by the major car companies. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 70 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Parts of Bristol County and southeastern Mass remain under a tornado warning until 515. That warning covers the western part of the county as well as the northeastern Providence County in Rhode Island. Anybody outside in Bristol County or parts of it is asked to seek shelter immediately. Again, that's in effect for about the next 10 minutes. Today marks the fifth anniversary of the natural gas explosions in the Merrimack Valley. The blast killed 18-year-old Lionel Rondon, injured about two dozen other people, and damaged or destroyed more than 100 buildings in Lawrence, Andover, and North Andover. Federal investigators say it was caused when subcontractors of Columbia Gas Company failed to move pressure sensors from a cast iron gas line to a plastic replacement. Columbia Gas paid millions in settlements and was bought out eventually by Eversource. There'll be at least three new city councillors next year in Boston. Councillors Ricardo Arroyo and Kendra Lara lost in yesterday's preliminary election after a series of personal scandals for both candidates. Another city councillor, Frank Baker, chose not to run for another term. Former city councillor Tito Jackson backed top vote-getter Enrique Pepin in the race for Arroyo's district seat. He told WBUR's Radio Boston the results are a reminder of the importance of running a distraction-free campaign. The top two vote-getters in each of yesterday's four city council races will face off in a final election in November. New Hampshire will not try to block former President Donald Trump from getting on the state's presidential primary ballot. Some people wanted to invoke a clause in the 14th Amendment that prohibits anyone who is engaged in an insurrection or rebellion from holding higher office. New Hampshire Secretary of State David Scanlon says state law does not give him that authority. Either a 14th Amendment disqualification applies across the board, or it does not. The United States Supreme Court is the authority that could make a determination on a disqualification challenge regarding a presidential candidate that would apply to all of the states. As of last week, Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin has not disclosed whether his office has conducted a review to bar Trump from the ballot. And federal officials are investigating a close call between airplanes at Logan Airport this week. A United Airlines flight was forced to abort a landing at Boston Monday because another plane was on the runway. The Federal Aviation Administration is working to figure out what went wrong. 
Last month, the FAA awarded Logan Airport $45 million to reduce these kinds of incidents. 74 degrees now in the Boston area. Multiple warnings in effect from the National Weather Service at this hour. There's a tornado warning in parts of Bristol County. That's good for about another 14 minutes. And a flood watch in parts of eastern and central Massachusetts. Showers and thunderstorms for the next several hours. Some of the rain could be heavy, so watch out for some flooding, especially in low-lying areas. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. A who's who of the tech industry gathered behind closed doors today on Capitol Hill. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates were among more than 20 guests who debated regulation of artificial intelligence. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. This was an amazing and historic experience where we learned so much, where we began our quest to deal with this so important looming issue, AI. Beginning their quest. So the meeting is part of a bigger focus in the U.S. Senate on what to do about AI. And Pierre's congressional correspondent, Claudia Griselis, is here to tell us about what happened today. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. So it's unusual to see a group of CEOs all coming together like this, all in Washington, mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill. What was the thinking? Well, this is an urgent moment for AI because there's still so many unknowns here. Elon Musk, the controversial CEO of Tesla and X, formerly known as Twitter, warned of, quote, civilizational risk or threats to humanity, while others in the room talked about protecting workers or vulnerable groups. There were other speakers who were more optimistic this could unlock cures for cancer, for example. Bill Gates, the philanthropist and ex-Microsoft CEO, suggested AI could address the hungry, while other said it could boost national security and defense. This is Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg told The Room that the government is ultimately responsible for playing a regulatory role and the U.S. should keep leading in this technology. We said this was all behind closed doors today. How much was actually public? Well, the press was allowed to enter the room at the top of the meeting, and what I saw was a long table of panelists, including Musk and Zuckerberg, and they were seated, they were seated far apart because, you know, they're not best buds, mind no cage you. Match today. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So they were facing rows of seats set out for senators to sit and listen in. But many speakers shared their remarks with reporters outside of the room afterwards. One of those people was Liz Schuler, who heads up the AFL-CIO. That was part of my job in the room is to say, look, we want to be partners. We want to be at the front end of this process so that we're not just implementing technology and workers having to sit back and take it. It's about a co-creation process, and that was very well received. Senators described the tone of the discussions as frank, nonpartisan, and spirited. Well, that all sounds promising. Did they actually come to any concrete agreements? Well, Leader Schumer, who moderated the discussion, said senators did get consensus on some things. He said everyone on the panel agreed the government should play a role regulating AI and they should put in guardrails. He also said there was a consensus to balance the government's role in enhancing AI's benefits against limiting the risks, that is, boosting transformational innovation, which again gets into discussions of aiding the hungry, the sick, while also addressing sustainable 
sustainable innovation or minimizing bias, loss of jobs, or some of these doomsday scenarios that came up in the room today? Um, Again, I was struck by Senator Schumer and what he said about that they're just beginning their quest to deal with the important issue of AI. What are they actually planning to do with this information? What's the next step? So Schumer says for his group's part, they have more forums to come, and at least some of these will be public. He said they're months away from drafting legislation, but we should note Congress has a lackluster history of regulating emerging tech, and they also lack expertise here. And these are pretty partisan times. Already House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has spoken out against some of the ideas being proposed. That said, Schumer says he's been in touch with McCarthy, and he was encouraged that perhaps there is a bipartisan path forward. We will see how far that path extends. NPR's Claudia Grisales reporting for us on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Thank you. And now, some news for anyone out there who has ever wandered down the medicine aisle looking for something to clear up their stuffy nose. Turns out, a key ingredient in many popular over-the-counter decongestants does not work. That was the conclusion of a panel of experts who advised the Food and Drug Administration who met yesterday. NPR's Will Stone joins us now to explain what is going on. Hey, Will. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so set the stage for us here. What exactly is this drug? Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. It's called phenylephrine, and you'll see it abbreviated as PE on packaging. It's found in many popular cold and allergy decongestants that are taken by mouth and sold over the counter. And basically, these FDA advisors reviewed all the evidence, especially the more recent studies, and they concluded that it's not effective, at least when taken orally. And they were so convinced it was actually a unanimous recommendation. Unanimous. Okay, so what does this practically mean for these drugs? Well, the FDA does not have to follow the recommendations of its advisors. Uh, Given the strength of the evidence, the expectation of many experts, including Randy Haddon, who's at the University of Florida, is that they will agree with the assessment that it's ineffective. Which would eventually lead to these products being removed from the market. Now, there are many products that can contain this. I mean, it would clearly change the appearance of the cough and cold and allergy aisle at your local pharmacy. Unbelievable. And Haddon is actually very close to this fight over phenylephrine. He started looking into whether this worked around 20 years ago and was one of the researchers who asked the FDA to look into it. And the science here is basically that when you take phenylephrine orally at this dose, the drug gets broken down and doesn't end up actually helping your nose. (laughs) Despite this, though, these products were responsible for almost $2 billion in sales just last year alone. I mean, that is remarkable, Will. How did this ineffective drug ever end up on shelves in the first place? Yeah, it turns out that phenylephrine has been around for a long time. And while we know it's safe, it essentially got grandfathered in and went through a different process than what's required for newer drugs that come on the market. Haddon says it was kind of an accident of history because in the early 2000s, legislation was passed to combat methamphetamine use. And that led to pseudoephedrine, which was widely used at the time, moving behind the pharmacy counter. A pseudoephedrine can be used to make meth. So as a result of all of this, phenylephrine replaced it in many of these popular decongestants that are sold over the counter. Stephanie Ferreri is at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. She remembers what she was hearing when these products first became popular. When it first came out, a lot of people were like, this doesn't seem to be working as well. This doesn't seem to be working as well. So as a pharmacist, 
We heard a lot of anecdotal evidence from our patients saying it was not as effective as the um, pseudoephedrine, which was also on the market. Ferreri says she hopes that this reckoning over phenylephrine prompts the FDA to look at the evidence base for other older over-the-counter drugs. Uh, Some of the concern around phenylephrine is that while it's not dangerous, patients have been taking it, and if it's not working, it's essentially leading to delays in care and not actually resolving their symptoms. Exactly. Okay, so what are the implications here as we all roll into a new cold season? Yeah, well, there are certainly other options for people who need a decongestant. There's pseudoephedrine, which Frary just mentioned. It's sold behind the counter. You need to show your ID, but you don't need a prescription for it. I spoke to Dr. Derek Ward, who's with Kansas City Allergy and Asthma Associates. He says he can't really remember a time in his 17 years of practice when he's recommended phenylephrine. If I'm going to recommend a decongestant to somebody, I would typically either recommend a short course of a nasal decongestant spray, you know, like a generic Afrin, usually for three to five days, um, maybe if they've got a cold or something like that, um, or sinus infection, or an oral decon. If I'm going to do an oral decongestant, I would almost always recommend we use pseudoephedrine. So bottom line, Elsa, while this news about phenylephrine may create some confusion among consumers, it could upset the market. If it does get pulled, uh, doctors and pharmacists say there are still plenty of good options for consumers. That is NPR's Will Stone. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you. Nearly 200 environmental activists around the world were killed last year. That's according to a new report from an international human rights group. Most of the advocates were killed in Latin America. Colombia topped the list with 60 people killed. And Piers Kerry Khan reports. The list is long and spans several continents, but for environmental activists in Latin America, 2022 was particularly deadly. In Brazil, friends and relatives protested the disappearance of activist Bruno Pereira and journalist Dom Phillips while on a fact-finding trip in the Amazon. And in Colombia, land rights advocates Teofilo Acuña and Jorge Tafur both put out videos denouncing death threats they'd received. Last year, all four were found dead. Their names are highlighted on the list of 177 environmentalists killed in 2020, according to Global Witness. Not enough is being done to stop the killings. The group's Laura Ferrone says impunity fuels the murder rate and emboldens perpetrators to continue killing. No one is jailed, no one is tried, nothing happens. So it's clear that killing a defendant doesn't really entail so many risks for the murderers. Forona says many are murdered when they stand off with large and small-scale industries invading their territories, mostly in mining and agriculture. She says the rush to extract critical metals needed for electric vehicles and other transitional energy sources has seen activists clash with illegal miners and land invaders. Many of these are run by organized crime syndicates. Indigenous leaders made up more than a third of those killed last year. Colombia topped the list with at least 60 activist deaths. It's really a shameful statistic for the country, said Environmental Minister Susana Muhammad in a video message. The government of leftist President Gustavo Petro recently passed a law to step up measures to protect environmentalists, but it's been put on hold by Colombia's constitutional court. 
Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us uh, this afternoon. Coming up on All Things Considered, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un takes his massive up-armored train to Russia to pledge support for Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. What each leader wants to get out of the alliance, coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Dow fell two-tenths of a percent today, while the S&P and NASDAQ picked up a little steam. S&P rose a bit more than a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ gained three-tenths of a percent. Gasoline prices in the state are stable. AAA Northeast says the statewide average price is $3.75 a gallon. In Suffolk County, it's $3.91, while on Nantucket, it's a lot higher, nearly $5 a gallon. Bristol and Hampton counties have the cheapest average gasoline price in the state at $3.64 a gallon. It's five nineteen. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, with the world premiere of Lunar Eclipse, starring Karen Allen and Reed Burney, September 15th through October 22nd. More at Shakespeare.org. And Xfinity Internet, with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. There is now a tornado warning up for Brockton and Attleboro areas in parts of Bristol County, parts of Norfolk County, and Plymouth County as well. The storm system seems to be moving up to the east and north. Could have some heavy rainfall in certain areas. Overnight tonight shouldn't be too bad. Slow clearing, temperatures in the mid-60s, and for tomorrow, partly sunny, highs around the mid-70s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Morocco, people are still just getting to some of the mountain villages devastated by last Friday's earthquake, an earthquake that has killed some 3,000 people. NPR's Lauren Frere joined a sister and brother as they returned to see if their ancestral home is still standing. Brother and sister Bujama and Aisha Wanasser survived Friday's earthquake. They live in different cities where they felt only tremors. But they grew up in a mountain village near the epicenter. They hadn't been back in six years. 
and now they're going home to see if anything is left. All of our memories, will they still be there, Aisha asks? Our elementary school, our late grandmother's house, her brother adds. They hitchhiked up into these mountains until the roads became unpassable. And now they're walking alongside donkeys ferrying water and blankets uphill. On the outskirts of their village called Tinert, a cousin comes out to greet them. And reveals his own staggering loss. All of them, Aisha asks in disbelief. The cousin's wife and two daughters are all dead. A once idyllic hamlet nestled in apple and apricot groves is now just a giant pile of debris. More than 50 residents died underneath it in a village of just a few hundred. One resident is still missing, though, a nine-year-old girl. Her father is digging through the rubble of their two-story home with Mohamed Wahaf, a Moroccan search and rescue volunteer. With your hands you're digging? Yeah, we are. Wow. Our hands. A human chain carries away debris delicately so as not to collapse any air pockets they hope might be underneath. Then sniffer dogs move in. There's about 50 villagers lining this pile of rubble and they're all just straining their ears for, for a dog's bark. The dogs stay silent. They'll only bark if they catch the scent of someone alive, not a body. So what happened? It's difficult to say, but with this kind of construction, it's very, very difficult to... Spanish rescuer Edgar Juan says that unlike concrete and rebar, which when they collapse can leave air pockets, the red clay these buildings are made of becomes dense and impenetrable. The girl, he says, has likely passed away and relief operations across this quake zone are taking a turn. Sometimes it has a dark face and a... The father was digging himself. Yes, it's very difficult for him. The man's wife was killed in the quake too. Throughout this ordeal, children play tag in what's left of the town square, and Aisha Wanasser, who returned here with her brother, sits back from them under a eucalyptus tree and watches the search for this little girl in horror. Everyone in this village is like family to me, and our family is now shattered, she says. It's a big wound that'll never heal. Aisha and her brother hitch a ride back down the mountain, and later I get a message from the Spanish rescuers. They've found the body of a nine-year-old girl. Her name was Shaima. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, in the village of Tinert in Morocco's Atlas Mountains. Okay, get this. The human body produces at least one liter of mucus every day. I know, gross, right? But keep in mind, this sticky, slippery muck is crucial. It's a protective barrier against germs. It also helps your eyelids glide smoothly. And it moisturizes your gut. In fact, the moisturizing properties of mucus may sound familiar to those of you who've ever smeared a face mask with snail mucus on your face. That's right, this stuff can make you pretty. Seriously, snail slime is huge in cosmetics. And maybe I will finally take that plunge 
after this interview because scientists like Antonio Cerullo at the City University of New York have been studying the secrets of snails. He's the lead author of a new scientific paper on the topic out recently in the journal Nature Communications. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's so great to have you. So I understand that CUNY has the largest library of secreted animal mucus. I didn't even know you call these things libraries. <laughs> what kind of animals are we talking about here? Sure. Our Curie Mucus Library contains samples from corals, frogs, jellyfish, velvet worms, marine worms, oysters, hippos, birds, and hagfish, just to name a few. But I want to focus on the snail part of that range because I understand that for your study, you use snails that are the same snails used for escargot, which I would totally put in my mouth. But tell me why I need to smear these guys all over my face, too. The slime has so many advantageous properties. It's a powerful moisturizer and hydrating agent. It has antimicrobial capabilities. It's a powerful wound healing agent. It has so many great properties uh, for your skin, which is why snail mucus is a multi-billion dollar market across the globe. Billion? I had no idea. So I imagine that you have to harvest this mucus somehow, right, to do your research. How do you harvest snail mucus? We actually formed a uh, partnership with an escargot farm out in Long Island, and we called them up and asked, hey, you have many, many snails. Would you mind if we just played with them for a little bit and collected their slime? Yeah, so how do you collect? The way that we harvest the three different snail mucus is for the protective one across the back, we just simply scoop it off with a spatula and throw it in the tube. For the two on the foot, for the lubricant, we just let them crawl all over a large surface to just deposit that snail trail everywhere they can. Whereas with the adhesive mucus from the same part of the snail, we actually stick them to our dishes upside down to entice them to adhere to that surface and deposit their glue. Oh my God, that's so cool. So I understand that you subjected this mucus to all sorts of scientific analyses. I saw that you even made a huge map of snail mucus proteins. Can you just briefly explain what you found in this so-called mucus map? So what we found is what proteins make up this gel, this biological material, what sugars are attached to these proteins, and what kinds of salts connect the biomolecular network together. Once we know what they're made of, we can understand how to better use the mucus and how to create new materials inspired by them. That's why it's so important that we study it because mucus, I firmly believe is a beautiful material that is a choreographed chaos of so many complex components, so many different molecules coming together to do wondrous things. You make mucus sound like poetry. That is slime scientist Antonio Cerullo at the City University of New York. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. It was lovely being here. This is NPR News. <laughs> Several senior government leaders are in their 70s or 80s. The wisdom, experience, perspective that older generations can bring to our governance. 
is both remarkable, important, and, and necessary. How old is too old to run for office? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A two-week manhunt in rural Pennsylvania has ended with the arrest of convicted murderer Danello Cavalcante. He had been on the run since he crab-walked up a wall and out of a prison in southeastern Pennsylvania. A tactical team closed in on Cavalcante early this morning after a DEA aircraft spotted him on its thermal camera. Pennsylvania's Governor Josh Shapiro says the arrest ends a stressful two weeks where schools were sometimes closed and residents were on alert. Thank God there were no injuries to law enforcement or to the public. We obviously became deeply concerned after the suspect was able to steal a weapon. He was apprehended this morning with no shots fired. Meanwhile, state police say Cavalcante will now be sent to prison to serve a life sentence for killing his ex-girlfriend. A new study shows money is pouring into America's clean energy industry after President Biden signed a sweeping climate bill last year. As NPR's Michael Copley tells us, investment is growing fastest in the manufacturing sector. Over the past year, households and businesses have spent $213 billion making and buying things to cut greenhouse gas emissions, an increase of 37 percent from the year before. That's according to a study by the Rhodium Group and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Investment has surged since the U.S. government passed the Inflation Reduction Act last year and two other laws that encourage spending on technology to reduce climate pollution. More than half of that spending has come from consumers and businesses buying things such as electric vehicles and solar panels. But investment in manufacturing has grown the fastest, especially for electric vehicles. The report says clean energy is quickly becoming one of America's biggest industries. Michael Copley, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 70 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A tornado warning is in effect until 545 in parts of Bristol, Norfolk, and Plymouth counties as more storms move through the region. Meantime, in central Massachusetts, it could be weeks before all damaged roads in Lemonster fully reopen following Monday's storms and flooding. Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella says repairs are already underway and crews are also focusing on Barrett Park Pond. Our priority had to be the reservoir and Barrett Park, and uh, reservoir was taken care of, and uh, Barrett Park, it, it's underway. That will stabilize things as we deal with this no next rainstorm today and the possibility that the hurricane uh, moves in our direction. Schools are set to reopen tomorrow after they were closed yesterday and again today. Meantime, all national grid customers in the Merrimack Valley are said to have their power back on. The utility says the storms this week had knocked out electric service to more than 110,000 customers. National grid officials say they're now preparing for another round of possible outages as Hurricane Lee approaches parts of the state later in the week. Utah Senator Mitt Romney, who served as governor of Massachusetts and ran for president, says he will not seek a second term in Congress. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports Romney represents the dwindling moderate wing of the Republican Party. 
Romney's political career began in Massachusetts in 1994 when he unsuccessfully challenged Senator Ted Kennedy. Eight years later, he was elected governor and signed a major health care reform law known as Romneycare, which became the model for Obamacare. In 2012, he ran for president and lost to Barack Obama. As a senator from Utah, he was the sole Republican who voted twice to convict Donald Trump in his impeachment trials. Romney, who's 76, says it's time to move on. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. Romney's decision not to run again probably means an end to his political career. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The wet forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com And Langey School of Music's free Gessner Schocken concert, October 4th. Pianist Unbi Kim explores family and identity issues in an immersive multimedia performance. The National Weather Service has issued a tornado warning for parts of Bristol County, Norfolk, and Plymouth counties. It's in effect until 545. Meanwhile, we've still got a flood watch in much of eastern and central Mass. That extends until 8 o'clock tonight. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. We've all been there. You're having a party, maybe a family gathering, maybe a couple of friends for dinner. And no matter how big your house is, everyone ends up in the same place, the kitchen. Well, now journalist, writer, and former host of this program, Michelle Norris, is exploring the significance of the family kitchen in her new podcast, Your Mama's Kitchen. Norris talks with former First Lady Michelle Obama, with CBS Morning's host Gail King, Matthew Broderick, many others about their mother's kitchens, what they remember, what they learn there, what it means to them. Michelle Norris, welcome home. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> welcome back it's, to the All Things Considered it's really Studios. It's really great to be back here at we NPR and at ATC in particular. Yeah. Miss you guys too. Well, I'm going to take a cue from you. And before we get into a couple of the episodes that you've already dropped, I'll turn the question on you. Tell me about your mom's kitchen. My mama's kitchen was organized because Betty Norris is organized. It was delicious because Betty Norris is a great cook. And it was adventurous. My mom used cookbooks to explore worlds that otherwise weren't available to her. What does that mean? So when Julia Child's Big Fat Cookbook landed in America. And and this is a book that comes up again and again in many of the conversations that we've had. She got the book and in our little Minnesota kitchen was experimenting with French food. Yeah. She had tried Italian food. She'd read something in some magazine. And so in addition to the staples that we had, you know, the red beans and rice and the mashed potatoes, she also was doing things that 
were not expected. And our kitchen was also the hub of life. It had a TV, had a little radio in there. She was always listening. Interesting, she was one of the early adopter for public radio up there in Minnesota, public radio. But also my sisters would take control and then go to the end of the dial and dance music would come on and we would this dance. This is so interesting because I was expecting you to tell me some memory about how it looked or how it smelled and you're telling me this is what it sounded like. Yes, yes, yeah. I guess, you know, that's we're audio people, so that's what I think that's about. That's what you're paying attention to. Okay, so I want to dive into a couple of the episodes. It's so clear people are talking about kitchens, so they're talking about food. But how quickly that question gets to identity, gets to culture. The episode that you did with former First Lady Michelle Mm -hmm. Obama, who's a friend of yours, and you can hear the warmth between the two of you. You can also hear how much her family's economic status, they did not have a lot of money, and you hear that all through her memories Mm -hmm. of her mama's kitchen. And she, she says that, you know, they didn't consider themselves poor. That would not be a word that they applied to themselves But her mother stayed at home, and her father worked in Chicago, a municipal employee. And they raised two kids in a little apartment above their relatives. And so their kitchen was basically a converted bedroom. But what was interesting in listening to her talk about that, particularly at the end of the podcast, you can hear her getting a little emotional. That was the power of my parents' love, that consistency, the quality of the interactions. That's what it means to be a parent. That's how you instill something worthwhile for your kids. Yeah. That's what my kitchen table, my kitchen was for me. Look at where she's gone in life. She's lived in some of the grandest homes available to, you know, those of us who walk this earth. And realizing that much of what she needed came from that little simple kitchen Mm -hmm. with the yellow checkered tablecloth. Michelle Obama's kitchen comes across as a very warm as a welcoming kitchen. Some of the guests you interviewed for other episodes Mm -hmm. describe way more complicated kitchens as they were growing up. And I'm thinking of the episode you did with the married couple, Glennon Doyle, the writer, and her wife, Abby Wambach, the soccer star. Describe the very complicated meshing they've had to do in their own kitchen based on what they grew up with. So Abby Wambach, soccer star, comes from a big family, seven kids, and the kitchen was a space of abundance. They ate big meals. They were expected to eat everything on their plate. They had dessert every night. Glennon Doyle grew up in a very different household. Parents were educators. Dad was a football coach. They were very concerned about their physique. So that was a kitchen of scarcity. You know, they monitored how much they ate and when they ate. And they were not frivolous in terms of, oh, dessert. They'd never have dessert. So these two people come together. And inside of that, they each develop a really complicated relationship with food. Yeah. Abby Wambach has talked honestly about addictions of all kinds, but also to food. You know, she was an, an athlete who had to eat 6,000 calories a day to maintain her muscle mass. And then you retire, and it's hard to turn that switch off. Glennon Doyle talks openly and honestly about having eating disorders that started when she was very young. So they come together, and there's a simple question that I ask. And they said, What did you learn from watching your mothers in the kitchen? Because they mm-hmm. talked about how what their kids learned from them. And there's this interesting moment. Eat everything. Eat nothing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Literally. <laughs> totally opposite messages. Yeah. And it's all sort of wrapped up in, in you know, and then how they learn how to come together and build this beautiful life together. And that represents a lot of other issues in their life, that abundance and scarcity. It often deals with finance. It deals with how they deal with their time. 
So it's all this complicated stuff. But so many things in life come right back to the kitchen yeah. and the lessons that you learn there early on. Have you, Michelle, have you turned this question on your kids? What they would tell you if asked, if a stranger asked them, tell me about your mom's I kitchen? I have. And I was worried about the answer because the kitchens are also where, where we pay bills, where we have arguments, where we fuss at our kids to do their homework, where we do crazy volcano projects at the kitchen <laughs> table. <laughs> um, but I asked the kids, and dancing came up, because we do dance a lot in our kitchen. They talked about holidays. They talked about gumbo. And this is the thing that made me, my husband Broderick and I smile a little bit. They talked about consistency, that they knew that the kitchen was consistently a warm space where we ate on a regular basis, even while hosting this crazy show. You know, I careen home and have a quick meal with the kids and then a second meal with my husband later on where we really had time to eat. But I just wanted to sit at the table with them before they went to bed. Yeah. And you know what that's like. Yeah. But they remembered the effort. They remembered that I would cook on Sunday for the whole week and then put things in the refrigerator and label them. And so it made it easy through the week so we could always have a home-cooked meal. What joy that must bring you, that your kids remember the effort. They remember you showed up. Yeah. That's a lot. When you're dancing, what's the soundtrack to the Norris Kitchen? Um, it's usually, it's funky. It's got a downbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fishing for a yeah. music cue that you can play oh, us out on. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> a lot of Stevie Wonder, because I come from Minnesota, a whole lot of Prince. Something that gets the hips moving in the kitchen. That's usually, we're often dancing and cooking and laughing and grateful. Michelle Norris talking about her kitchen and her new podcast, which talks about all kinds of people's kitchens. It's called Your Mama's Kitchen. She's the former host of this program, Michelle Norris. Great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Seven time zones east of Moscow today, Russian President Vladimir Putin greeted the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Russia had announced Kim was coming for this summit of two authoritarians, but details of the meeting's timing and location were kept secret until Kim's arrival in his armored train after a two-day journey from Pyongyang. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow that each leader is looking to gain something from the other. Kim's state visit came at Putin's invitation, and the setting, once revealed, was clearly designed to impress. North Korea had recently failed to place its own spy satellites into orbit, so Putin chose the venue of Russia's new Vostochny Cosmodrome for the summit, welcoming Kim with a warm handshake and later a personal tour. As Putin looked on, officials from Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, told Kim about the latest in Russian space technology. In fact, before Kim's arrival, Putin told reporters Russia would help North Korea's quest to launch a satellite. That's why we're here, said Putin. North Korean leader shown a big interest in rocket technology. In turn, Kim was full of praise for his hosts, 
Speaking through an interpreter in official remarks before the press, Kim fully endorsed Russia's invasion of Ukraine, calling it part of a sacred struggle to defend Russia against Western imperialism. The day ended with a state dinner and remarks from both leaders. Through an interpreter, Kim toasted Putin's health and the crowd rose to its feet as Kim called for a Russian victory in Ukraine and offered assurances of North Korean solidarity in Moscow's struggle to protect what he called the sovereign right of security. Reached by phone, analyst Konstantin Asmolov of the Center for the Study of China and Modern Asia in Moscow calls the gathering an important event. He says it shows Moscow and Pyongyang can find creative approaches to work together when confronted by what he calls the collective West. Moreover, Asmolov says it's a partnership forged not only from the war in Ukraine, but North Korea's own concerns over a new trilateral alliance between the U.S., Japan and South Korea unveiled in Washington last month. This is a reaction, said Asmolov, to the formation of South Korea's new power triangle. The summit came despite warnings from the U.S. and its allies that Russia was in danger of violating U.N. sanctions against North Korea, which Russia itself voted to impose. North Korea is under multiple sanctions for its illegal missile and nuclear weapons programs. Western officials worry Russia might offer its advanced technology, for example in rocketry, in exchange for access to North Korea's massive munitions stores to replenish its arms for the war in Ukraine. But if such a deal was struck, the terms remain out of the public eye. In comments to state media after the summit concluded, Putin acknowledged Russia faced, quote, certain restrictions from the UN, but that possibilities for military cooperation with North Korea existed. There are things, of course, we can talk about, said Putin, and we're discussing the prospects within the existing rules, a comment likely to induce some anxiety in South Korea, Ukraine and elsewhere given the stakes at play. Yet even as Putin was praising deepening ties with North Korea, he insisted it was too early to judge the ultimate outcome of Kim's visit. Kim now heads to inspect additional Russian military and civilian aviation factories, as well as the Pacific Fleet in Vladivostok. Having arrived to Russia's premier cosmodrome, direct by train and under cover of night, the North Korean leader's meandering journey home is as close as he gets to taking the scenic view. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered on WBUR, the view from the ground in Libya, which is reckoning with devastating flooding after a storm caused two dams to collapse. That's ahead in about 15 minutes. Start the day here tomorrow. WBUR's Rupa Shanoi will talk with Mayor Dean Mazzarella of Lemonster about how the city is trying to recover after nearly a foot of rain fell in a matter of hours this week. Also, meteorologist Daniel Noyce will tell us what to expect from Hurricane Lee as it heads our way. Listen when you wake up tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University. Think you know Jaywoo? From nursing to graphic design, let Johnson & Wales surprise you. More at jwu.edu. And Live Nation, presenting the Outlaw Music Festival with Willie Nelson, Bobby Weir, and Wolf Bros, featuring the Wolf Pack, and more, September 16th at the Xfinity Center. Tornado warnings have expired, but there's a strong thunderstorm now in the Canton area coming up from Rhode Island. Should have moderate rain in Boston and in parts north and west. Overnight tonight, slow clearing, then tomorrow should eventually be partly sunny and dry. This is WBUR. 
WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive, directtire.com, and Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Fall semester starts September 18th, semesteroff.com. Several senior government leaders are in their 70s or 80s. The wisdom, experience, perspective that older generations can bring to our governance is both remarkable, important, and, and necessary. How old is too old to run for office? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. After a two-week manhunt, which included almost 500 local, state, and federal law enforcement personnel, Pennsylvania State Police captured convicted murderer Danello Cavalcante. That happened this morning without incident. And this search had brought life almost to a standstill in Chester County, Pennsylvania. For more details, we're joined now by reporter Kenny Cooper of WHYY. Hi, Kenny. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So how did police finally capture Cavalcante? So it was a long, methodical search, and it really kind of came to a head about last night. Uh, shortly after midnight, there was a reported sighting. Authorities rushed to the area, but they couldn't find anyone. But because temperatures are cold, they were able to spot an image using a, a D, uh, DEA plane. And that plane was using uh, thermal imaging uh, to actually spot someone. Now, there was a storm that passed through the area that forced the plane to land, but because it was able to capture an image, uh, it allowed search teams to kind of converge on the area and actually, you know, form a new perimeter that was much, much smaller than all the ones previously. Mm, okay, and, and why did the search take so long? Two weeks. Now, the search took so long because of the terrain, um, you know, because of the heat. And it was because of those factors, you know, you, you saw the use of thermal imaging camera uh, cameras be much more difficult to use. It exhausted search dogs. It exhausted these canine officers. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, especially as this weather kind of cooled down overnight, it allowed officers to actually circle the perimeter. And before you know it, uh, Danilo Cavalcanti was surrounded. Um, he was near a pile of logs trying to crawl away. And that's when he was actually apprehended. Mm. Well, uh, to remind everyone, he escaped from Chester County Prison, and he wasn't the first inmate to escape from that facility this year, right? So is this prison making changes in the wake of all of this? So that was the first thing that the Chester County Commissioners mentioned this morning when they sent out their statement. They, they said that the prison is already making some immediate changes to improve security, and they've actually brought in some contractors to actually evaluate the area and make sure that, you know, any of, uh, you know, perceived weaknesses within the facility are, you know, patched up. That was reporter Kenny Cooper from WHYY. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks for having me.
from St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, Italy, to the Venice Beach Boardwalk in L.A. Waterfront landmarks are under increasing threat from floods and rising sea levels caused by human-driven climate change. As part of an ongoing series on the impact of climate change on cultural heritage, NPR's Chloe Veltman explores how her own city of San Francisco is considering drastic measures to save its historic shoreline It's on the National Register of Historic Places for good reason. San Francisco's waterfront is on the National Register of Historic Places for good reason. The waterfront Jack London loved as much as I do. TV and filmmakers have long been seduced by its splendours, like Austin Green in his 1960s travel movie, The City of Seven Hills. The old ferry building still stands guard at the foot of Market Street, dwarfed by the bridge that soars above its tower. But the future of San Francisco's waterfront isn't secure. In 2016, the National Trust for Historic Preservation put part of the city's urban shoreline on its list of the US's most endangered historic places. Elaine Forbes is the executive director of the Port of San Francisco. The agency manages a seven and a half mile stretch of the city's bay-facing waterfront. The whole issue of climate change and historic preservation intersects right at the waterfront. Forbes watches the ferries come and go on a sunny afternoon near her office at one of the city's recently renovated historic piers. She says sea level rise hasn't historically been as much of a threat to San Francisco as major earthquakes, but that's changed. Parts of the main road that runs along the waterfront are flooded from heavy rains in recent years. The state estimates the water could rise roughly up to two and a half feet above its current level by 2060, and potentially up to seven feet by the turn of the century. I would say it's clear by mid-century we need to have had intervention. The city is figuring out how to strengthen its 140-year-old seawall and physically move the waterfront's historic structures out of harm's way including the iconic ferry building. To prepare for sea level rise, which is coming, we may need to lift this building up to seven feet. It's hard to imagine what it will take to physically raise the enormous white landmark with its soaring clock tower up that high. The ferry building sits smack in the middle of the waterfront. It's been a beacon to incoming ferry riders since the late 1890s. The high-end boutiques and gourmet eateries inside attract droves of tourists. We've heard loud and clear everywhere, it's to be saved. No matter the cost, no matter the effort. It's going to be saved. The ferry building, if you want to rise at seven feet, that's going to save the ferry building. But what's going to happen to the rest of the city? Sanaz Tahernia is a digital healthcare professional who lives in one of San Francisco's shoreline neighborhoods. The community is what makes San Francisco, not these buildings. She's one of several people NPR chatted with on the waterfront recently about what's top of mind when it comes to protecting San Francisco landmarks from sea level rise. Locals Raymond Cassidy, Dakari Tillery and a visitor from Ireland, Mary Mulcrone, weighed in. It would just be something to see the change, if it goes good or if it's bad, like if it's for the people or if it's for profit or something, you know. It would be a shame for all these old buildings to be destroyed. But I think all over the world with global warming, we're going to see whole countries underwater. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just I don't want to see any parts of the city affected if, if we can do anything about it, honestly. San Francisco's plan includes preserving some historic buildings, beefing up emergency response systems and protecting natural habitats. 
The city estimates the project could cost billions of dollars, so figuring out what to prioritise is tough. Marcy Rockman is a Washington, D.C.-based consultant and researcher who's an expert on the impact of human-caused climate change on cultural heritage. She says all places have heritage, not just ones with plaques on the buildings. Where heritage is often most vital is where it is lived and used. Rockman says she hopes San Francisco's approach will balance care for less visible yet deeply valuable aspects of the city with prominent heritage places like the Ferry Building. We cannot hold back the sea. But we can carry forward some of what's important about this place. What would you like that to be? In a statement to NPR, San Francisco's Port Authority says ongoing community feedback is helping to inform its draft plan for saving the city's shoreline. That plan is expected to be released early next year. Chloe Veltman, NPR News, San Francisco. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some economists are not expecting the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates again in the near term, despite a new Labor Department report that shows a slight uptick in inflation. This still paints a picture of core inflation returning to normal, and so I think they're probably done hiking for the rest of this year. That story coming up, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, we'll hear from one of the witnesses to the signing of the Oslo Peace Accord 30 years ago today and what it meant or didn't mean for peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And business news tonight on Marketplace. A small taco chain in San Diego has kept the price of a staple menu item down, even if it means it's losing money on it. So we bought the 99-cent fish tacos back with the agreement that once a year we would do a small raise but only when our guests are okay with it and only when people are not going to be so angry at us. Good luck with that. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russian President Vladimir Putin met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Russia's Far East today. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, details surrounding the timing and location of the meeting were kept under wraps until the last minute. Kim's state visit comes at Putin's invitation, and the setting was designed to impress. North Korea has recently failed to launch its own spy satellites into orbit, so Putin hosted Kim at Russia's Vostochny Cosmodrome, even providing the North Korean a personal tour. The summit comes as the U.S. and its allies have warned the Kremlin seeks access to North Korean munitions to replenish arms for its war in Ukraine. Putin insisted Russia was ready to provide North Korea with technological assistance to launch its own satellite and said there were possibilities for military cooperation. In turn, Kim fully endorsed Russia's invasion of its neighbor, calling it a sacred struggle to defend Russia against Western imperialism. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. The death toll from flooding in Libya has now surpassed 5,000. That's according to government officials. Rescue efforts in Derna and surrounding areas are being complicated by the impact of more than a decade of conflict in Libya and division between rival governments. Here's NPR's Ruth Sherlock. Experts say a quarter of Derna city is destroyed. Residents, many of them now without homes, are searching for the bodies of loved ones, some of whom were washed out to sea. Video footage from the area shows dozens of corpses lined up in the yard of a hospital and another shows bodies in white shrouds buried in a mass grave. In Derna, the storm caused dams to break, sending a torrent of water that submerged whole neighbourhoods. Libya is impoverished and war-torn, and experts say the dams hadn't been maintained for years. Meteorologists say this storm was also particularly intense and in keeping with a pattern of more extreme weather caused by human-induced climate change. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Rome. A federal judge is rejecting an emergency motion from former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Remember station WABE in Atlanta, Raul Bally reports. Meadows asked the court to put a hold on the decision to keep his Georgia election interference case in state court. Prosecutors say Meadows and 18 others, including former President Donald Trump, conspired to disrupt the transfer of power after the 2020 election. That includes Meadows' role in the phone call where Trump asked the Georgia Secretary of State to find the votes to overturn Trump's 2020 loss in the state. Meadows maintains his actions were part of his duties as a federal official, but local prosecutors say Meadows was acting on behalf of the Trump campaign and are pushing for one massive trial for all defendants. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. A mix close on Wall Street with the release of new CPI numbers today. The Dow was down 70 points. The Nasdaq closed up 39 points. The S&P was up 5 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a tornado warning for Norfolk and Bristol counties right now. It's in effect until 6.30 tonight. National Weather Service says try to seek shelter if you are outside. Once again, that's for parts of Norfolk and Bristol counties. It's in effect until 6.30 this evening. The forecast is coming up. Today is the fifth anniversary of the Merrimack Valley gas explosions, and U.S. Senator Ed Markey has introduced a bill to help prevent similar disasters in the future. The so-called Pipe Act would close a loophole that restricts federal regulators from applying new regulations to existing pipeline infrastructure. It would also allow regulators to impose greater penalties on companies that violate the rules. The 2018 natural gas explosions killed an 18-year-old man and damaged more than 100 buildings. The boosters are coming. Shipments of the new COVID vaccine are on their way to Massachusetts. Federal officials yesterday recommended the shot for people six months and older.
The new vaccine formula is designed to offer better protection against the latest variants of the virus. Here's WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Massachusetts Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says state residents will be able to start getting shots within days. The updated COVID vaccine began shipping last night and will be available in clinics, at pharmacies, and through local boards of health as early as the end of this week. The pharmacy chain CVS says vaccine doses are starting to arrive and will be at all of its pharmacies by early next week. Walgreens is also scheduling appointments for next week. The new vaccine arrives as COVID cases and hospitalizations remain on the rise. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The State Department of Public Health is raising the risk of eastern equine encephalitis to high in six communities. Mosquito samples containing Tripoli were found this week in Sutton and Southbridge. That's prompting the state to raise the risk to high in those two communities, as well as in nearby Douglas, Dudley, Oxford, and Webster. No human or animal cases of Tripoli have been found in Massachusetts so far this year. Mitt Romney will not be seeking a second term in the U.S. Senate. The senator from Utah and former Massachusetts governor made the announcement today. Romney cited his age as one reason he decided against running for re-election. Romney moved to Massachusetts uh, from Massachusetts to Utah following his failed presidential bid in 2012. He served as Massachusetts governor from 2003 to 2007. And 11 Bostonians who have turned 100 years old were celebrated today. The centenarians were honored at the Massachusetts State House by Central Boston Elder Services. Sylvia Exantis is the group's executive director. She says turning 100 is a huge milestone. They've been the pillars of our community, um, our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and they've just offered so much in terms of their longevity, in terms of uh, the life lessons that they've passed on. And so all of that is uh, worthy of a, a celebration. All the centenarians will uh, are still live in their own homes with assistance from Central Boston Elder Services. 74 degrees in the Boston area. Once again, there's a tornado warning in effect right now for parts of Norfolk and Bristol counties. It is in effect until 6.30 tonight. Try to seek shelter if you happen to be outside right now. Could have some drenching rains from time to time overnight tonight, making the already saturated ground even more likely to produce runoff and lead to flooding. By tomorrow, it should be dry. Tomorrow should be cloudy in the morning and then partly sunny during the day with high temperatures in the 70s. It's 6.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. We are still learning the extent of the devastation in Libya after a storm slammed the coastal city of Derna. Two dams collapsed, whole neighborhoods washed away. So far, at least 5,000 people have been confirmed dead. Thousands more are missing. Dr. Huda Akram is a doctor based in Benghazi, Libya, but her family hails from Derna. And when we reached her today, I started by asking about them. A warning, the details of what she told me are vivid and disturbing. May, may I begin by asking after your family? Have you been able to reach them? Are they okay? 
Uh, well, my uncles and my aunts, they're fine, both from my, my mother's and my father's side, but my grandmother, unfortunately, did not make it with my aunt. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Um, but her son survived, though. At, at first, uh, we heard there's a storm coming. We thought it's just a couple of rain. People can seek shelter on the rooftops of their houses. But then things started to become worse, and we heard that the dam collapsed. However, even after we heard the dam collapse, we couldn't even imagine that it would be this bad. And uh, people had to leave the city, and they wrote names on whoever can identify. They were writing lists of names and posting them on Facebook just so people can, can know about their families. Are they alive? Are they dead? Are they missing? So... Your aunts, your uncles, who you said are okay, they have left the city. Can you describe what they're telling you of what that voyage was, of what's happening now? now first, when we heard about it, uh, it was late at night. Uh, we knew that my grandmother was staying in the down downtown where the flood is happening. My father and my uncle drove all the way there, but they didn't even get the chance to see them or bury them. That The army took pictures, and they were sharing them with the family to confirm the death. My father and my uncle were driving there and they heard the news while they were on their way there. And they're there uh, right now. There's no electricity. There's no water. They're all gathered in, you know, relatives in the same house, just comforting each other. Yeah. Um, but they haven't left yet. There's still, everyone is grieving and trying to figure out what to do next or where to go. My heart just goes out to your family, and I'm thinking of, given the death toll, given the numbers, there must be so many families um, who are getting the kind of news you've just gotten. Are you in touch with others? Uh, yes, of course. My grandmother's house, they survived miraculously because my cousin was on the rooftop, and she was warning them to go upstairs into the building it's just in split seconds people who are anticipating they managed to warn the others to run and my cousin was telling me we were running and the water is just running after us and they stayed there on the rooftop until they were holding on because the water was also pushing them and they're these are these are like there's a lot of people her dad's entire household entire family name from the grandfather to the husband to the husband and wives and grandchildren completely wiped. Yeah. I, I mentioned you're a doctor, you're a psychiatrist. Um, so you will be thinking about this in terms of how on earth you process something like this. How do you deal with the, the shock now and the trauma that's to come? Is that right? Yes. I mean, we have a lot of PTSD. We deal with a lot of PTSD soldiers from all the armed conflicts before. And I, there's nothing compares to this. I could not imagine that we ever saw patients who, I mean, my my cousin there, he's six or seven. He's just mute. He's just mute. He literally saw his mother die in front of him. He was hanging on into a tree while my aunt and my grandmother drowned. And it's just drowning is so, in your own house, being stuck is... It's ugly. It's just, it keeps haunting you how they must have felt while they were seeing, anticipating their death. I, I want people to understand that what is, what you're describing 
an unspeakably awful situation is made worse by the instability that Libya has experienced in recent years, political instability. What are you hearing about relief efforts, about trying to get help to people who desperately need it? I hear help is going there, but I, I, nobody, no one is telling us that they're actually receiving help. That is Dr. Huda Akram speaking to us from Benghazi in Libya. Dr. Akram, thank you for your time. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Inflation picked up a little steam last month, largely as a result of rising gas prices. The Labor Department says the overall cost of living in August was up 3.6 percent from a year ago. That is the biggest annual increase that we have seen all summer. But the Federal Reserve is still expected to hold interest rates steady when policymakers meet next week. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so inflation was coming down for most of the last year, right? But now it's gone up for two months in a row. How worried should we be? You know, it's not what you want to see, but it might not be that big a deal. Uh, As you noted, rising gas prices accounted for more than half the monthly jump in the cost of living last month. And that may not continue. We know gas prices bounce both up and down. Uh, Preston Caldwell, who's the chief U.S. economist at Morningstar, says gas prices may have a little more uh, room to climb, but he thinks drivers will start to see some relief at the gas pump in the not-too-distant future. We'll see another month or two, perhaps, of upward pressure on energy prices, but after that it should run in the opposite direction, I think. Gas prices are still lower than they were at this time a year ago and quite a bit lower than they were at their peak uh, last June after the U.S. slapped sanctions on Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine. Right. Okay. And what's happening to other prices? You know, it's a really mixed bag. Uh, Rent is still going up, although not as fast as it was. Uh, Hotel room rates were down last month. Airfares were up after falling in June and July. Uh, The rise in airfares was mainly because of higher jet fuel costs. Uh, Caldwell says if you strip out that volatile energy component and volatile food prices, we're generally seeing an easing of inflation over the last 12 months. This still paints a picture of core inflation returning to normal, and so the Fed will not high rates, and it's meeting next week. I think they're probably done hiking for the rest of this year. And financial markets generally share that uh, forecast, at least as far as next week's meeting is concerned. Although with inflation still well above the Fed's target of 2%, you can't rule out uh, one additional interest rate hike uh, later in the year. Hmm. Well, I understand that one place people are really feeling this inflation is auto insurance. What's going on there? Yeah, auto insurance has been a big mover this year. Prices are up more than 19%. That's partly a byproduct of some of the other inflationary forces we've been seeing. You know, it costs more to repair or replace a car these days. Uh, The insurance industry also says it's seen more serious accidents uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and more uh, more damage from natural disasters. Uh, Rising insurance premiums are a challenge because in most states, car owners have to carry auto insurance. I asked California consumer watchdog Harvey Rosenfield what drivers can do to try to cut those expenses. There's not a lot of solace there. I mean, the very first thing you got to do is shop around because there are very often better deals to be had. Some insurers charge more than others. The next thing to do is make sure that they've accurately assessed you as an individual policyholder. 
you know, some insurance companies will give you a discount if you download an app on your phone so they can track your driving habits. Of course, there's a privacy trade-off there. Yeah. Uh, often it pays to bundle your home and auto insurance. Uh, there is some good news. Used car prices were down last month. Uh, new car prices were up again, though, and we could see new car prices go higher if there's an extended strike against the Detroit automakers. Mm. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. The MTV Video Music Awards are back, and though the ceremony faced some length and pacing issues, NPR's Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento reports that the VMAs packed a serious punch last night. A couple of big pop stars got long overdue recognition from MTV last night for their trailblazing roles in music. Shakira became the first South American artist to win the Video Vanguard Award, which she celebrated with a 10-minute medley of her career-spanning hits. Sean Diddy Combs also took the stage with a mashup of his own, appearing at the VMAs for the first time in over a decade. Diddy received the Global Icon Award. Taylor Swift took home nine awards. But Billboard deputy editor Andrew Unterberger says who wins isn't necessarily what makes the VMAs exciting. What people are tuning in for now is the performances. This year, the growing influence of global music in mainstream pop became clear as artists from around the world performed at the ceremony. Beso Pluma brought Mexican regional front and center and K-pop band Tomorrow by Together collaborated with Brazilian pop sensation Anita. Another important nod to international stars came when Nigerian singer Rema won the inaugural Best Afrobeats Award for his song Calm Down featuring Selena Gomez. This means so much seeing Afrobeat grow this big and being here on this stage representing Afrobeat tonight. I'm so happy. But Unterberger says the ceremony had one big problem. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, nearly four hours is just too long for any award show. It wrapped up with the 50th anniversary of hip-hop tribute, including Grandmaster Flash and LL Cool J. Unterberger says it might have been a missed opportunity in a year of so many hip-hop tributes for the VMAs to look forward, giving Glorilla, Cali, or Best New Artist winner Ice Spice a chance to perform instead. And these are the, the artists that are sort of going to you know, create the vanguard for the next generation. And this would have been a great moment for the VMAs to take the point to sort of show them off and say, OK, here's what's coming next. There's always next year. Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Nice to have you with us this evening on WBUR. National Weather Service has issued a tornado warning for parts of Norfolk and Bristol counties. Just about six minutes ago, a severe thunderstorm capable of producing a tornado was located over Plainville and near North Attleboro, moving northeast. The areas most at risk right now include Franklin, Walpole, Mansfield, Rentham, and Foxborough. If you happen to be outdoors, try to get inside as a precaution. The tornado a warning remains in effect until 6.30. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com mos. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? 
why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. The Dow fell two-tenths of a percent today while the S&P and NASDAQ picked up a little steam. S&P rose a bit more than a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ gained three-tenths of a percent. This is WBUR, 71 degrees now in the Boston area. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It was on a clear and cloudless morning this very day, 30 years ago, on the south lawn of the White House, and peace felt palpable. This bold new venture today, this brave gamble that the future can be better than the past, must endure. President Bill Clinton stood alongside Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin for the signing of what came to be known as the Oslo Accords. The two men, long steeped in conflict, shook hands. A handshake meant to lead to peace for Israelis and Palestinians. While 30 years on, peace feels very far away. Violence persists almost daily. Sitting in the audience at the White House that day was Aaron David Miller. Back in 1993, he was the State Department's Deputy Special Middle East Coordinator. He then spent years trying to help implement the Oslo process. Aaron David Miller, welcome to All Things Considered. Always a pleasure, Mary Louise, to be with you. Take me back to that day. Y'all were what, in the folding chairs they set out on the South Lawn, September 13th, 1993. What was going through your mind? Sunny, hot, beautiful day. And I must admit, I was caught up in the moment. This was not process. This was substance. I think no one anticipated the breathtaking scope and expanse of what the Israelis and Palestinians had worked out by themselves, an interim process. Yeah, I thought wrongly, in horrible misjudgment, I must say, that uh, the peace process, so-called, had become uh, irreversible and there was no going back. Before we move on from that handshake... You know, for those who don't remember, for those who aren't familiar with those personalities, how big a deal was that handshake between Arafat and Rabin? I think it was huge. In fact, in many respects, there was a good deal of Israeli nervousness about Rabin actually shaking hands with Arafat. It was, it was the, the first time, right? They'd never done right. it. Right. Yeah. Right. It was uh, a beaming Arafat and a very awkward and comfortable Isaac Rabin, uh, somebody, an authentic, genuine Israeli leader who had taken a huge decision given Israeli politics and would pay for his life in making that decision. Ah. So in that moment of hope, when, as you put it, you believed the, the peace process and forward momentum were irreversible, what exactly was promised? Like, I know this is incredibly complicated to sum up, but in a few sentences, what was the Oslo Agreement? Well, there were two pieces to it. One was a package of mutual recognition between Israel and the PLO, which was really quite controversial. In fact, that actually endures, for better or for worse. The second was on the substance. 
a series of interim accords which were to be negotiated, which essentially had the Israelis withdrawing from large pieces of the West Bank and a promise that the interim period would eventually end in five years and permanent status negotiations would begin between Israelis and Palestinians. The logic of Oslo, Mary Louise, was that this interim process could generate the kind of trust and confidence that would allow the leaders in their respective publics to essentially then face the excruciatingly painful issues of what to do about Jerusalem, refugees, borders, security, and, of course, how to end conflict. That never materialized. In fact, Oslo, I think, produced precisely the opposite. Lack of confidence, lack of trust, profound suspicion. Yeah. So I want to dwell a moment on the U.S. role here, because the U.S. has always maintained that Palestinians and Israelis have to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict directly. But obviously the U.S. was deeply involved. You were deeply involved. And the U.S. was then and is still seen as favoring Israel. Was that problematic? Did that seep into the talks? Uh, There's no doubt about it. We were involved. But then again, remember, this was their process. We were all quite surprised by the uh, specificity and the breathtaking nature of the compromises that both the Israelis and the Palestinians had made. It was their agreement. And um, unfortunately, it was structurally flawed. We did enter the process. First, uh, we catered for peace. We were firemen and women who essentially uh, were called on at, at moments of crisis during the negotiations. We really were far too often Israel's lawyer when, in fact, we should have been an attorney for an agreement, lawyering for both Israelis and Palestinians. So bottom line, how much responsibility do you think the U.S. bears for the collapse of the peace effort? Uh, I think we we bear a fair share. Uh, I would never argue that the primary reason you do not have an Israeli-Palestinian conflict ending agreement today is largely because of the absence or presence of U.S. rule. I think in the end, the old expression in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car, is is profound and appropriate here, Mayor Louise. I mean, people don't wash rental cars usually because they care only about what they own. So no, the primary responsibility for why we don't have Israeli-Palestinian peace, despite the asymmetries of power between Israelis and Palestinians, rests with the um, Israelis and Palestinians themselves. Well, this brings us to where we are now, which to sum up, uh, and correct me if there's anything I'm about to say that you disagree with, but we have Israel with the most right-wing government it has ever seen. Its senior leaders openly want to undo Oslo. We have Palestinians who are also deeply divided, two rival leaderships, and many ordinary Palestinians do not see the Palestinian Authority, which was set up under Oslo, as legitimate. What promise do you see? What hope do you see going forward? You know, Elie Wiesel once said, without hope, there's no life. And I agree to that. Um, Do I think a a two-state solution or separation through negotiations into two polities, do I think that's still possible? Yes, I do. But you need leaders who are masters of their politics, not prisoners of their ideologies. You need a sense of ownership. And you need an end state. You need some organizing principle. I mean, I still cling to the notion that the only logical, rational outcome is separation through negotiation. I don't see any other way. You're making me think back to that day uh, on the lawn at the White House, 1993. And I want to just step back and look at the wider stage. The early 90s, when that happened, we were marking the end of the Cold War. 
the Berlin Wall had fallen. In Northern Ireland, the groundwork for the Good Friday Agreement was being laid. There seemed to be windows for peace opening in many parts of the world in that moment. Today feels so very different, um, not just in the Middle East, but, but more widely. So can you imagine another window like that opening for the Israelis and Palestinians? Frankly, as I mentioned to my kids in their 40s, I'm not prepared to say never. And the answer is yes, I can imagine it. But it, it needs, essentially, we, can't, we can no longer delude ourselves or fool ourselves. We need leaders. We need an effective mediator. And we need a sense of ownership and a sense of partnership. And you simply don't have it. I would say to you that there are no rewind buttons on history. The 90s was the only decade in the last century in which there was no major Arab-Israeli war, 48, 56, 67, 82. The 90s came and went with no conflict. And that was in large part because of the hope and promise and because of the U.S. role. We've been speaking with Aaron David Miller, who today is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was the Deputy Special Middle East Coordinator for Arab-Israeli negotiations. Aaron David Miller, thank you. Thank you, Mary Louise. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com.